Let me get this thing on here. <clears throat> Let's continue our worship now as we turn into the 14th chapter of the book of Acts. We have a lot to get to this morning. <clears throat> Acts chapter 14. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter, all 28 verses. So if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to read Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 28. This is God's word. Now at Iconium, they entered together into a Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness of the word uh, excuse me, to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some sided with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now, at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, They tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from the heaven and fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowd, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia, came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken 
<coughs> the word in Perga, they went down to Adalia, or Atalia, and from there they settled to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, in this chapter of the book of Acts, maybe <coughs> more than any other, any other, uh, we really are, are given a, a proper perspective for life on this earth, an eternal perspective. It's, a, it's amazing to see in the narrative account that we just read uh, the testimony of these two men, Paul and Barnabas. It's, a, it's amazing to see the actual unfolding of events which will back up the exhortations found in future letters. In other words, when we read letters like Galatians and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Romans, when we read of all these letters and, and hear of Paul's urgings and encouragements to the believers of all generations to persevere through tribulations, to rejoice in sufferings, to remain steadfast amidst, amidst persecution, we can then, after reading a chapter like this, say, you know what? Here's a guy who actually knows what this means. Here's a guy who actually knows how to rejoice in his sufferings. Here's a model that I can look to, an example that's been given to the church, and uh, specifically to me if I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, an example for me to follow should things in my life get really, really heavy. Uh, should I begin to be persecuted for righteousness sake here's how i can respond when i'm reviled for my faith when, when paul writes we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance i can say you know what that's true we can rejoice in our sufferings and i can take the author's word for it because he's been through the suffering he's endured the hardship he he has gloried in his tribulation and his affliction, and we see that here in, even in chapter 14. When he says, uh, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When he says that to the believers in Corinth to strengthen and encourage them in the midst of their sufferings, well, I know that I too can be strengthened and encouraged along with them because the source of that strengthening and encouraging is speaking from experience, right? I know that the author has firsthand knowledge of what it means to suffer temporal affliction uh, while longing for eternal glory. When he says, through the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, I can rest in that truth. I can rejoice in that truth. I can revel in that truth and build my life on the foundation of that truth. We can face any perilous situation with the utmost confidence that we are in the sovereign will and the steadfast love of our Lord of whom we will never, never be separated. I can trust this. I can trust the divinely inspired instruction for my life because its source is not only the very author of life himself, but also my fellow man. 
who, who actually put their faith into practice, men who actually lived out their faith, who, who experienced trials and tribulations and suffering and affliction. And, and these writings were preserved to tell us how to respond to these experiences in a God-honoring and God-glorifying manner. And we don't even get out of this chapter, this chapter 14, without Paul having just been stoned turning right around and strengthening the souls of new converts to Christ, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saving and, and saying to them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We should praise the Lord for texts like this. And uh, the example that's been left for us even today. So let's dive right in here. We're going to break this chapter up into a few weeks, but I believe it's better to take it as a whole. Especially when you consider this wraps up uh, Barnabas and Paul's first missionary journey, uh, having been sent out by the Holy Spirit from Antioch in Syria. We have four main sections, and there's a couple things I'd like to point out and consider together in each section. Verse 1, Luke writes this. says, Now at Iconium they entered together into a Jew, uh, the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now we're going to see a great miracle in this account today. A man crippled from birth, uh, being healed instantly through the power of the Holy Spirit. This man who leaps up and begins walking. But this verse 1 shows us the miracle before the miracle. Does God still perform miracles today? You better believe it. Is there anyone who's walking around with the apostolic authority and, and giftedness to be able to uh, perform miracles? Anyone who has the gift of healing? Negative. But we still see miracles, don't we? Not only can God heal anyone he wants at any time he wants, but he can do so under any circumstances he wants to do them, not only in a physical sense, but also in a spiritual sense. And every true believer knows that the greatest healings he performs are not the physical ones, but the spiritual ones. The miracle of new life, uh, new birth, uh, becoming new creatures in Christ. The miracle of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. His death, burial, and resurrection alone is the greatest miracle this world has ever known. And this miracle is still happening all over the world today. Hopefully in churches around this area who are faithfully proclaiming the gospel of God. Maybe even here this morning he's performing this miracle. Well, Paul and Barnabas, after getting running, run out of Antioch and Pisidia, they make their way over to Iconium, where we read of such salvific miracles taking place. As Luke says, a great number a great multitude of Jews and Gentiles believed. They believed. Is there anything better in this whole world than seeing people come to true and saving faith? I would say no. Uh, apart from our individually and personally coming to the knowledge of true and saving faith, there's nothing better than seeing folks saved from the wrath of an infinitely holy God and save to eternal life with him by his amazing grace alone. There's nothing better. And that's what happens here when they came into Iconium. A great number of Jews and Greeks believed the gospel. 
But of course, this miracle is uh, taking place in a still fallen world, isn't it? These miraculous conversions are still taking place in a corrupted and cursed earth where we have a very real enemy who blinds the minds of unbelievers. And subsequently, he uses blind unbelievers to poison the minds of other unbelievers or anyone who may be be t- uh, of anyone who may be tempted to bend the knee to Christ in this life. So when we see great revivals like this, we see uh, great conversions like this, we know that they won't always come easy. There's always going to be some opposition. It's not going to be easy from our perspective. Uh, verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time. Some people uh, say up to a year or more. They remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. They had opposition. Sure, that's been the pattern of our time in Acts so far, right? Anytime you see people being born again to everlasting life, uh, transformed by the word and the work of God, not by their own works or deeds, out seem to come the wicked of the world in full force of hoping to extinguish the flames of the gospel. In this case, Luke writes that they were poisoning the minds of those who might hear the truth. They're they're causing a people to revolt against the truths of the gospel. This is toxic and deceptive propaganda used against Paul and Barnabas being breathed into the psyche or the emotions of their hearers. But Luke says, Paul and Barnabas stayed in Iconium. They remained for a long time as opposition grew, waiting until that very moment they were led to go elsewhere. Now, how were they able to do this? How did they stay amidst this uh, opposition? Well, look who they were depending on in verse 3. They were speaking boldly for the Lord, who, that is the Lord, bore witness of his grace. Ultimately, it was the Lord who was bearing witness of his glorious gospel, which is is how Paul and Barnabas are able to remain so confident. They were depending on his might, on his strength, and resting in his sovereignty over the circumstances. They weren't depending on their own abilities, uh, their own resoluteness. They weren't depending on their own courage. Paul has even admitted this much uh, in his later letters. He says, uh, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that... Your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Essentially saying, look, it wasn't me. (laughs) It's not my wisdom or my excellencies in speech that enacted and bolstered your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the power of the Spirit whom he sent into this world. It was the power of God who saved you and strengthened you in your faith. Paul says, I was weak when I visited you. I, I, I was full of fear. I had no power of my own. I wasn't, but I wasn't depending on me. I was depending on God who sent me. 
That's what we see here in verse 3. The Lord bore witness of his grace. The Lord bore witness of his gospel, and he did so with signs and wonders, which were used to validate the message that they were proclaiming. Uh, S. Lewis Johnson said the very same thing to his congregation at Believer's Chapel nearly 50 years ago. He said, you see, if we were to preach in such a way that you would go out of the audience and out of this auditorium and you would say, why? The gospel was expressed in such beautiful tones, in such a lovely way, with such penetrating logic, with such great manifestation of the skills of eloquence and rhetoric. If that was the source of your faith, it wouldn't be long before you would have the opportunity of hearing one who would be able to do it better. Then your faith would rest in the wisdom of men. The apostle was anxious that the faith that the believers had rested in the power of God so he avoided preaching in brilliant logic and with outstanding magnificence and eloquency and rhetoric. In fact, the apostle says he was with them in weakness and fear and in much trembling. His speech was not in the wisdom of men at all. He was relying upon the testimony of the Holy Spirit to give to the preaching of the word of God that fundamental authority that brings a man out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's how it should be. And that's right. Uh, but it's true and as right as it is, Luke says in verse 4, the people of the city were divided. Uh, some sided with the Jews and some sided with the apostles when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. Uh, they learned of it, fled to Lystra and Derbe, <coughs> cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. The city was divided. And this makes sense, right? I mean, even Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but what? A sword. That's right. He said, do not think that I have come to bring peace upon the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father. I have come to set a daughter against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now here, a whole city was divided. And this should be of no surprise. The gospel faithfully proclaimed will always bring some sort of response, some sort of strong emotional reaction. Even a seemingly non-response is a response in itself. Uh, Steve Lawson told, once told those in his body, I... I don't want you to leave this church indifferent to the truths of the gospel. He said, I want you to either leave here sad, glad, or mad. <laughs> but don't leave here indifferent. I'll just be straight up with you. Uh, a few weeks ago, I preached a sermon on satanic opposition to the Great Commission, and it looked as though some folks were going to fall out of their chair with boredom. It was, as one preacher said, the bland leading the bland. <laughs> you know what that tells me, though? It tells me I didn't have enough gospel truth in there. It tells me there were far too many of my words and not enough of his words. That's what that tells me. Because you can't be confronted with the truth of the gospel and the reality of an infinitely holy God either sending a person to eternal damnation apart from him forever and ever or 
to eternal bliss and eternal life with him in the new heaven and new earth, not by anything they do, but only by his sovereign grace without eliciting some sort of response. Personally, I'd rather have folks leave here heartbroken or or seething mad than yawning and stretching or, or walking out of those doors talking about the upcoming football game. Well, the Jews here uh, in Iconium and the the people in Iconium who they convinced were seething mad. So Paul and Barnabas, they say, we're moving on for now. Okay, they go about 20 miles uh, south of Iconium to Lystra, which was approximately like walking from here to Roxborough Park. That's about the distance. Verse 8 says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and he had never walked. Talk about it. A perfect setup for a divine sign here. Look at the re-emphasis. There was a man sitting. He could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth. And in case you needed any more affirmation of the man's helpless condition, Luke says he had never walked. Okay? I love that. Just so we're clear here. He couldn't use his feet. He was crippled from birth. He had never walked. But while he wasn't walking, he was listening, right? Verse 9, he listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. Now this is incredible. This, there was likely a mass of uh, people around. This was the case in most places they went. And out of all the people that were hearing the word preached, Paul zeroes in on this one man. He gazes on this one man who Luke says Paul saw had the faith to be made well. Now, what does this mean exactly? Uh, That it was dependent upon the man to conjure up enough faith to be made well? Is that what this means? Of course not. First of all, any faith a person has is graciously given as a gift from the sovereign Lord. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says that Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. All faith within the one who believes was authored by Lord Jesus Christ. So if you have faith, you got it from the author of faith. He gave it to you as a gift, a grace gift. Philippians 1.29 says that it has been granted unto us to believe in Jesus Christ. Acts 3, verse 16 says all faith in Christ is faith that has come from and through Christ. Second, as one commentator said, as is true of other similar references to a healed person's faith, uh, this man's confidence was in God. He believed that God could heal him, not that God would heal him. Uh, Confidence that God would heal him, in other words, is not what made him whole. It was confident that God, through his servant, could heal him, uh, which constituted his faith. His God-granted faith was a factor in his receiving this healing. Actually, the Greek word here trans, uh, translated healed is sozo, or saved. So while the man may have had uh, faith to be saved spiritually, uh, saved, the context suggests he probably believed that he could be saved physically or healed. Now, sometimes, as we know, it's the Lord's will for folks not to be healed, right? And sometimes it's the Lord's will for them to be healed. And in this case, Paul, having been granted apostolic authority and divine giftedness on par with Peter, said to this crippled man who couldn't use his feet, 
who had never walked who had, uh, from his birth, stand upright on your feet. He says, stand up to this man. And what does the text say? That he, he slowly moved around a little bit? That, that his legs started wake, uh, shaking and twitching and convulsing a little bit? That he, that he grabbed someone's hand or, or the wall to brace himself? That he tried to rise a couple of times but kept falling over before finally standing, standing and wobbling around like some drunken toddler? <laughs> Which was never a good situation, <laughs> by the way. Like some drunk? Uh, did he... Did he struggle to find his balance or, or grab a walker or a cane just waiting for the second blessing from the gifted preacher which would finally finish the job? Is that what he did? No, Luke says in verse 10 what he did. He sprang up. He leapt up and began walking just like that. Instantly. Again, another reminder, do not be fooled by the demonic shenanigans on TBN and Daystar. <laughs> I know everyone's heard of some miraculous missionary story of someone receiving a healing of some sort. Everyone has a friend in Africa who's seen some sort of extraordinary healing or demonic exorcism. But let me see it. Show me. Just tell me about your buddy. Show me like these folks saw it. This guy had never walked. Do you understand that? Which means he never learned to walk. He didn't have the muscles required to stand, let alone walk or, or leap up. But through the power of God, all these necessary components, they were formed, and they were formed like that instantly. And therefore, he was instantly able to leap up and instantly through, though he had never learned how to before, began walking around. Uh, so, so don't be fooled by the claims of healings, of, of backaches and ringing in the ears and arthritis and other unverifiable wonders that they're putting on the TV. Come on. Same with ecstatic tongues, by the way. Nobody knows what they're actually saying, so they can ramble anything they want to foolish, gullible people, uh, convincing them to think that they're a highly spiritual person because <laughs> they've been given the gifts. But that's not what happened here in Lystra, is it? No. Luke says the guy stood up. He leapt up. He began walking around. And ultimately, we don't need to see it anyway, do we? I don't need to be swayed by the miraculous in order to believe it. I believe what the text says. That, that the God who grants faith is the one who wrote it. I, I believe it did happen in an instant and for a specific purpose and for a specific time when signs and wonders were used to validate the message of God's grace, which the apostles were faithfully proclaiming here. Plus, not only that, but we're, we're about to see just how deep the convictions of those who depend on signs and wonders go don't we? Aren't we? We're about to see it. Are you ready to see the shallow soil of the signs and wonders crowd? Well, Luke tells us, starting in verse 11. He says, When the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. <coughs> Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowd. 
So these Lyconian people, they see this miracle has indeed t- just taken place and an undeniable work of a divine power has taken place here. And so their initial reaction is to then exalt these men as gods and subsequently offer sacrifices to them. A- and they called Barnabas Zeus. They called Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. This is where we get the term hermeneutics, by the way, or the knowledge of interpretation Hermes, uh, that's what they called Paul. He was the chief speaker. And interestingly, there was good reason for the people recognizing Paul and Barnabas as these Greek mythological figures. James Boyce explained, in the book Metamorphosis, Ovid, uh, the famous Roman poet collected the mythological stories that have to do with people being changed into one thing or another, which is what Metamorphosis refers refers to. And at one place, he told a story about this very area. According to Ovid's story, Zeus and Hermes had once visited a valley near Lystra. They went from door to door, but the people refused to take them in. Finally, they came to a poor house occupied by a man named Philemon, the same name as the runaway slave of Paul's acquaintance, and his wife, Baucis. These elderly people received Zeus and Hermes, so they stayed the night. In the morning, the gods took uh, this couple up to, uh, out, to the city to a mo- out of the city to a mountain. And when they looked back on the valley, they saw that the gods had flooded it, drowning everyone. Then, while they were looking on, Philemon and Baucis saw that their gods had transformed their poor ho- hovel into a gr- uh, great temple with a glittering gold roof. Now, I don't know if that's supposed to be hovel or hotel. Is there such a thing as a hovel? That's what it means then. So, <laughs> these <laughs> never heard of a hovel. I thought, oh, I got a typo. So these folks in Lystra now, when Paul and Barnabas are there, they're saying, you know what? Our great, great ancestors, they really blew it by not letting uh, these gods in their house, right? Now here come Paul and Barnabas, uh, and, and a once crippled man is now walking around town. And I guess Barnabas had the appearance of a god or something, and Paul certainly had the gifting of utterance, and the Lyconians had absolutely no intentions of blowing it this time around. No, they said, we're going to treat these men like the gods they are, so that we can get ours. We want our gold-covered hovel, uh, or whatever it was. So the priest comes out. This apparently wasn't a very big city here. It wasn't a very big town. Likely no synagogue. There's a few number of Jews. It's worth mentioning that this is where Timothy and his mom and his grandma were from. But it was kind of a backwoods town in many ways. Anyhow, the priest comes out, and he comes out with these ox and, and some garlands. And unlike many celebrity pastors in these charismatic prosperity wolves of our day, Luke says in verse 14, when the apostles, or sent ones, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, They tore their garments, and they rushed into the crowd, crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. They say, don't exalt us. Don't don't worship us. Good night. We're we're just men. We're just like you. We're we're born of Adam. And again, how easy would uh, would it have been for them to say, Well, you know, a little praise never hurt anyone. Or, you know, we've been through a lot. This is kind of nice, actually. Uh, Let's just enjoy this. Maybe we can get a free lunch out of it or something. (laughs) Or even, hey, man, if these people think that we're gods, they're going to listen to anything that we say. 
this might be a great opportunity for us to manipulate these people into the kingdom of God. Get our salvation count up a little bit, right? I could have said that. I say again, uh, how many folks today, how many people today who claim to be the messenger of God's word would revel in the opportunity to be worshipped by this crowd? Do you think for a moment that any of the hipster preachers and prosperity charlatans on TV would reject the praise and the adulation offered to them by this crowd? It would never happen. They'll take it. They take it every week. Well, Paul and Barnabas wanted nothing to do with it. They know there is only one who deserves the glory, and that is the living God. Even one of the holy angels at the end of Revelation who John bows down to in reverential awe and fear says, don't worship me. I'm just a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. They say, we're just men. We're just sinful men desperately in need of God's grace, just like you. And then they preach the gospel. And no, this isn't like the gospel they preached back at the synagogues. Notice that? No references to Isaiah or King David or John the Baptist. Why not? Well, this was predominantly Gentile city. They likely wouldn't have known all that history, so Paul preaches what they do know. God's undeniable revelation of himself in creation. Verse 15. And we bring you the good news. You should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He says, Zeus? Are you kidding? That's a myth. Those are wooden idols. You made those with your hands. Turn to the living God, the one who made the sun and the main, who, who, who gives the rain that grew that little tree that you fashioned those idols out of. The, the one who created all things by the word of his power. And again, the sign of this man being healed in an instant just like that, having ligaments and tendons and muscles that were non-existent and, and certainly non-functioning just moments before now walking bears witness to this truth. He can speak something out of nothing. And you're calling us Zeus? Uh, Paul says in verse 16, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He says, you, even you godless men and women have been able to benefit from the common graces of God. Uh, Jer Jeremiah said the same thing. Are there any among the idols of the nations who give rain? Or can the heavens grant showers? There's, he's saying on their own. Is it not you, O Lord, our God? Therefore we hope in you, for you are the one who has done all things. To these Lyconians, he, he's given you food for crops, he, or, or excuse me, rain for your crops, the sun to keep you warm, the love of a spouse, the joy of children, the joy of earthly relationships. He've, he's given you laughter and, and love and life. He's given you temporal life and has blessed you abundantly, even though you don't even know him. And yet, here you are with your cow and your garland, and you're ready to offer sacrifices to your fellow sinful men whom you think are the incarnation of a couple gods who don't even exist. What are you doing? 
so crazy for us humans to worship anything but the one true living God. It's insane. And yet the majority of the people on this earth do just that. And this, well, the same thing is true. I, I don't know all of you in this room this morning. I would love to, but the same may be true of you. You might know, not know all the Christian lingo that we throw around here from time to time, but you can walk outside and see the sun shining, right? And you can understand you didn't put it there, right? <laughs> well, who did? Well, Paul tells both these Lyconians and you right here in verses 15 through 17. That's who made it, and that's who's worthy of your praise. But Luke says in verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. <laughs> Just can't help ourselves, man. Mm. That's not all, but now that their true nature is revealed, now we're about to see how far those signs and wonders got them. Watch the fickleness of this entertained yet shallow grounded people in verse 19. Ready for this? They were just about to worship them. Verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. So, so the unbelieving Jews come from Antioch to Iconium. They, they, traveled, about some, uh, they traveled about 80 miles. Okay, then another 20 to, to stop Paul and Barnabas from spreading this message, which is eerily similar to Paul's traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus to stop people from doing the same, right? But what was he doing then? He was acting out of I arrogance and ignorance. He, he thought he was serving the living God, but in reality, he hated God. He was kicking against the goads of the Lord's sovereign will and purpose for his life, just like these unbelieving Jews who come from Iconium, they hated God's people because they hated the God of whom they were bearing testimony. And so they stir up this fickle crowd who were focused on the miracles and not the message. Okay, they did the same thing to Jesus, right, at the triumphal entry. Palm branches are waving, shouts and cries of adoration by many of the same people who were screaming for his crucifixion just days later, so easily swayed by the Jewish religious authorities. Next thing you know, these we see it right here. These same types of fickle people are, are lobbing stones at Paul to the point where they leave him for dead. They were just worshiping him. Now they're then verse 20 says, but when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up. As they say, you can't keep a God-man down. Even if you kill us, you're just improving our situation. Uh, now, some commentators, it's, it's worth mentioning here, some commentators, some good commentators, very reputable commentators, think that Paul actually died here in this moment, and this is, this is the moment where he's caught up into the third heaven before then being resurrected from the dead. But that's not in the text here. That's nowhere indicated in the text. It could have happened. But to state that dogmatically, that, that this is what happened, is really inappropriate. Uh, we do know that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, a letter not written for uh, much later, uh, maybe 20 years later, he says, once I was stoned. Well, this... Stoning happens right here in Lystra. 
Outside of all that, all we know is that he got up. And where'd he go? Look at verse 20. He got up and entered the city? He got up and entered the city? He went right back into that same city to finish preaching his gospel message. Saying, I wasn't finished here. He went, he went right back into that city knowing that he was invincible until the Lord was through with him. And you know what? Each and every one of us are invincible until the Lord is through with us, right? What does that mean? It means we can have the utmost confidence, the same confidence that Paul had, that we can communicate his word and his gospel truths. Nothing will happen outside of the sovereign, predetermined will of God for our lives. We can preach with all the boldness in the world, all the confidence in the world, even if you don't know what a hobble is. Now, I know, I, I love what John Wesley said, and that might be one of the only times you ever hear me say that. <coughs> but I love what John Wesley said. Always look a mob in the face. Always look a mob in the face. That's what Paul did here. Paul knew he was doing the work of the sovereign Lord, so he went back in, he finished his sermon, he stayed the night, and verse 20 says, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. This is even further southeast, okay? It's about 60 miles uh, further south. Then look at this in verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city, the Great Commission, when they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, praise the Lord, uh, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. One commentator said of this verse, and Christians do not go through tribulations to get to heaven, but Christians go through tribulations because they're going to heaven, right? Does that make sense? We're not saved by our suffering. We are saved because the Lord Jesus Christ suffered, bled, and died for our sins. We are saved because he rose again, lives forevermore. Paul wasn't teaching these new believers that they had to suffer in order to make it to heaven, as some so errantly teach. Paul was teaching new believers that because they had already been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, they would in turn suffer because of their faith in him. It's just a part of the Christian life, suffering is. Spurgeon asked, how can I uh, look to be at home in the enemy's country? Joyful while in exile or comfortable in a wilderness. This is not my rest. This is the place of the furnace, of the forge of the hammer. That's right. Martin Luther said, whatever virtues tribulation finds us in, it develops more fully. If anyone is carnal, weak, blind, wicked, irritable, haughty, and so forth, tribulation will make him more carnal, weak, <laughs> blind, wicked, and irritable. On the other hand, if one is spiritual, strong, wise, pious, gentle, and humble, he will become more spiritual, powerful, wise, pious, gentle, and humble. That's what we see here with, with the Apostle Paul. Okay, He was uh, beaten, bloodied, bruised, but he goes right back the way they came, back into hostile Lystra, back through hostile Iconium, back through hostile Antioch and Pisidia. 
even though he could have easily gone right from Derby through Tarsus, his hometown, where he knows people, back to Antioch of Syria. But look where he went. Whoop, all these people that persecute him, all these people that wanted to stone him, he goes right back. Magician. He goes right back the way that he came. And he's strengthening others. He's encouraging other believers in Christ. What this tells me is that Hollywood ain't got nothing on Paul and Barnabas. Verse 23, when they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, singular, plurality of elders in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They, likely meaning Paul and Barnabas in conjunction with the sheep who knew their shepherds, appointed elders. They appointed elders who would continue to strengthen them, who would continue to equip them and lead them and feed them and protect them and care for the flock of God, to care for the flock of Christ, all in accordance with the apostolic teaching they had been given. Alex Strauch writes, Uh, This verse 23 shows that churches can exist without elders, but every church should have have elders as it matures. Churches were formed. Churches were established. When Paul and Barnabas came back through after perhaps another year away, these local bodies of believers, some of them and some of the men within these bodies were evidently mature enough to the point where they were appointed as overseers. That's what this means. Right after Paul told them, it's not going to be easy. You're going to have tribulation as sure as the kingdom is going to come. You will have tribulation. Finally, we see a sweet homecoming in verse 24. Then they passed through Pisidia, they came through Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adalia or Italia, however you want to pronounce it, and they were preaching the grace of God. Preaching the grace of God wherever they went, to whomever they went, Jew or Gentile. The gospel available to everyone, not without exception, but without distinction. Wherever they went, they were fulfilling their apostolic duty by bearing witness to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. From there, they sailed to Antioch in Syria, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled and when they arrived and gathered the church together, what they, would they do? Well, they declared all that God had done with them, how he had opened up a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. They came back and they reported all that God had done through them. How he opened a door, not just for God-fearing Gentiles, not just for Gentile converts or proselytes to Judaism, not just those who vowed to adhere to the customs or laws of Moses, but to full-blown pagan Gentiles who were granted everlasting life just like the Jews by his grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And thus ends Paul's first missionary journey. Sent out from the church at Antioch, now back at the church in Antioch, ready for the next batch of tribulation, which comes in the very next verses. But some men came down from Judea, were teaching the brothers, 
Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Lord willing, that's what we'll look at together next week. Amen? All right. Please pray with me now. And Peter and the music team will come up and lead us in amazing grace. Our Heavenly Father,